Our text this morning is from Romans 6, 15 through 19. You'll find that on page 943 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and have been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. This is the word of the Lord. Christine, you may be seated. We are approaching the end of our time in Romans 6. Um, Next week, Palm Sunday, will be the last sermon in this series. Uh, We'll start something new after Easter. We'll talk about that later. Um, So stop asking, okay? Um, Listen, last week we talked about uh, something very briefly uh, we talked about it from one end of the spectrum about how God, uh, his commands don't uh, overpower his promises. Well, as we start this passage today, Paul's reminding us on the other side of that. God's promises do not nullify his commands. Look at verse 15, and you will. And so we talked about this uh, just because God loves you, just because God loves us, doesn't mean we can ignore, modify, or knowingly violate his law. What then, says Paul, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he gives a very strongly worded, by no means. God God forbid, no way. And so we have to remember, church, the context of what we're talking about here as we talk about sin and all these things, the partnership between God's promises and God's commands. They always go together. They work together. Together, The reason we fight sin is not to stop sinning. That's only thinking of God's commands. Think about this. Using a term that Steve already said this morning, uh, that is behavioral modification. I must do this because God said not to do it, and that's the only reason. There's more to it. Again, the partnership of God's promises and his commands. The reason it's not okay to sin against God, certainly because he commands us not to, but also because of what he has done already. His promises. We are new people. The proof of this is you look at verse 16. As soon as Paul says what he says in verse 15, he jumps to the proof. The proof is our identity. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He's using an image here. He's using an illustration. The image, the illustration of slavery. Slaves have no choice whom they will serve. They serve one master, not multiple. And so in this case, as he's using this illustration, he wants us to see if we are slaves to sin, we have no choice but to organize our lives to serve it. If we are slaves to righteousness, we have no choice but to organize our lives to serve 
God and his righteousness. It's a matter of heart, not a matter of behavior. Christian, this is important for us to hear. It's important for us to understand. Our identity defines our ability. The purpose of our lives is defined by our master. And we can see here as we begin into verse 17 that we were once slaves of sin. We have a new identity. We have a new identity because of the gospel. Our hearts are regenerated by God. Because of the gospel, our, our, our eyes are open to see Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what that means. Because of the gospel, because of God's work, we're unified with Christ. All the spiritual benefits of Christ are ours by faith, by grace through faith. This is our identity, church. It's who we are. These things have been done for us, and so what we hear from this passage is we are no longer bound to organize our lives to fulfill our sinful desires. We're redeemed, we're rescued. We've been purchased by a new master. We've been purchased, bought by Christ's blood, not by the will of man, but by the will and the work of God. The ownership of our souls has been transferred from death to life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's happened already by the work of God. And so church, what I want you to hear this morning, we've been talking a lot about sin and sometimes it can feel overwhelming. Sometimes it can feel hopeless. Here's the message from Paul this morning. Our sin, Christian, is not inevitable. It's not inevitable. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made a way for our old dead hearts to be torn out and new living fertile hearts to be implanted by the work of Jesus Christ, by the power of the spirit and by the power of that spirit, something new sprouts there and it's called obedience. May this morning we focus on, hear our identity. May we understand how that works with our obedience. May we see your grace and how grace and your promises lead to our following of you toward righteousness. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. I love that Paul is starting the verses 17 and 18, which really are the core of the information from this passage, he starts them with a phrase that we might even just kind of glaze over. He says, thanks be to God. But these words are so important. They're so important to understand scripture. Thanks be to God. You see, verses 15 and 16 aren't multiple choice. Verses 15 and 16 aren't a question. Well, Christian, what kind of Christian are you gonna be? You gonna be the one that serves sin or serves righteousness? No. Because of God's work, we are one thing or the other. We do not, cannot serve anyone but our master. And who is our master? Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Church, we don't separate justification and sanctification. They come at the same time, and they come by the work of God. 
We don't say that we are now saved and, and Jesus is our Savior and we have to wait around and work for him to become our Lord. He's both at the same time at the moment of salvation. And so God doesn't save and stage us stages. He saves us, regenerates us once for all time. And so this thanks be to God is so loaded with promises, loaded with truth. We have to understand we are free from measuring the validity of our salvation by our behavior. Because of this, thanks be to God. We are treading on territory called God is the one who saves. God is the one who sanctifies. So as we navigate our sinfulness, we must understand these foundational principles. We have to know that we do not renew our hearts by changing our behavior. Do you hear that distinction? We don't act better so our hearts get better. That's not what's happening. Look at the rest of 17. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin. Listen to, what, listen to the order of this. Ha, and have become obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Our behavior, we're just going to call it that, our behavior changes by God's renewal of our hearts. Not the other way around. I'm a huge nerd about Bible stuff, and I am excited about this next illustration. I've not been this excited about an illustration in a long time. That's super nerdy, I know. But listen, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he gives two concentric stories that, that are a perfect example of this. We have Luke 18, the rich young ruler, or the rich young man, and you have Luke 19, Zacchaeus. So let's run through this real quick. This demonstrates this idea of a changing heart, changing your behavior, not the other way around. So let's talk about the rich young ruler. He was a good dude. That's in the Greek. Uh, he behaved well. Okay, he behaved well. When he meets up with Jesus, here's his conversation. He says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you know, obey the commandments. He says, well, I have. <laughs> I've done all of them. I've done all of them. So think about this. What he's saying is, by, by societies and religion standards, I'm a good dude. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Now, we don't get into the whole thing that he probably has modified some of these commandments to make them easier to obey. We're not getting into that because Jesus doesn't deal in those, those weeds. He goes straight to the heart. And what does he say? He sees this man. He sees his goodness. He sees the love this man has for his reputation and the love this man has for his wealth. And so what does Jesus do? He cuts to the heart. He says, you have to follow me. Give away all your money and come follow me. And what happens at the end of the story? The man goes away sad. He goes away sad. So that's the good dude. He goes away sad. We then, just a few verses later, get to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a great character. He's a great character. He was a wee little man, okay? He's a wee little man. He was not a good dude. There's only, I just learned this recently, Zacchaeus is the only person in the Bible to be called a chief, a chief tax collector. Tax collectors are not good people. They, they are Jews hired by Rome to take money, to swindle money from the people to, so that they can pay Rome the taxes and get rich themselves. Zacchaeus was so good at doing that, he was in charge of other tax collectors. Do you see? He was a chief swindler. Likely not well liked. He was hated. What happens in the story? He encounters Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. Jesus is walking through town. So what does he do? Famously, climbs a sycamore tree for the Lord. 
he wanted to see. We see tree, man, this is a story made for music, okay? He, Jesus sees him in the tree, he says, come down, I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house. And immediately, it gives me a little bit of chills, immediately Zacchaeus' heart is changed. Listen to what he says. This doesn't happen later at dinner, this happens on the street. Luke 19, eight through 10, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Let's compare the stories. You have the behaviorally acceptable one. The one, if we lined them up here, and we had rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, the wee little man over here, some of you would be like, hey, can you move the podium? We'd say, sure, here he is. Um, and we had to secretly, awfully vote. Who do you think? Who do you think is a Christian? We would 100% vote for the good guy. But what do we learn from the story? The guy who was behaviorally acceptable, he was a slave to sin. What was the sin? His pride, his reputation, his wealth. And nothing could deter him from what he loved. And it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Jesus. He organized his life around the one thing he loved. How, see how sin can make us act right? So it's not just about acting right. But then we have on this side the scoundrel. He, before our very eyes in Luke 19, became a slave to righteousness. Nothing after encountering Jesus could deter him from the thing that he loved and it wasn't his money anymore. He organized instantaneously his life to serve his new master. Now, what we don't get to see about Zacchaeus' story, what we don't get to see is, is, is um, we don't get to watch him fulfill these desires for righteousness. Imagine how this went for him. He was hated. He defrauded people. And so I'm sure that his story was full of starts and stops. He would go back to people to pay them back fourfold, and they probably said, I don't want a, a stinking cent of yours, Zacchaeus. You ruined my family's life. He had a journey full of hard conversations. I am certain, not biblically certain, personally certain that, that he was, there were moments in his life where he remembered how easy it was to just have a ton of money. But again, church, what do we see? One, in the moment, is confronted with their sin and they, 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 their heart is not in it and so they go back to the thing. But then Zacchaeus, who has much wealth, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house to stay. And he says, I'm giving it all away. I want Jesus. What's the point? What's the point? Our obedience has an origin. Our obedience has an origin. Our obedience is given to us by God himself after our encounter with Jesus Christ. We do not obey to become more like Jesus. This is different than a lot of us have been raised probably in the church. 
This is a different way of thinking about it. We don't behave well so that we become more like Jesus. No, we will see an increase in our obedience as God makes us more like Christ. It's reversed. One of my uh, habits on Sunday morning when I get here is uh, most Sundays I'll open uh, Paul David Tripp's New Morning Mercies. <laughs> Listen to the, the opening quote from this devotional this morning. Obedience never ends freedom. Obedience is evidence that true freedom has entered your life and liberated your heart. That's the idea. That's the idea. So verse 17, Paul shows us obedience is from a heart that God has given us, a renewed heart, and he goes straight to identity in verse 18. Having, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Church, if we are in Christ, we are free from our sin. It's who we are. It's our identity. We're slaves to righteousness. Now, I love analogies. I love illustrations. I love taking, especially Reformed theology can be very complicated. I love, one of my, my first loves is taking something so huge and so ominous and bringing it down to bite-sized portions. I love that. It's part of my calling as a pastor. But if you, if you use illustrations or you've heard analogies, you know they can be pushed too far. And Paul knows this as well. Look at the verse, beginning of verse 19. He's bringing this analogy to a close because it can go too far. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He literally is saying, I'm using an analogy here because of your diseased human understanding. That's not as friendly as uh, natural limitations, but that's what it means. Our minds, is a good little side note, our minds, church, our intellect is broken. Our intellect is broken. The questions we raise, the feelings we feel, the logic we possess are not without misunderstanding and error. The things we understand about God, the things we understand about our Christian life that we thought we understood for all of our years, they are not without misunderstanding and error. This is why we need God's word. He tells us who he is so we don't have to figure it out. So Paul for the sake of our diseased human understanding, you're welcome for that, is simplifying the matter. Second part of verse 19, he's boiling it down. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What is he saying? This is all rooted in identity. We are no longer who we used to be. We're no longer slaves to sin. By grace, through faith, we have a new heart, a new master. And what he's saying here is live the life of who you are. Live the life of who you are. Our identity, our new identity, which is established by God, leads to sanctification. Our behavior doesn't define who we are. Our identity, our new identity, which is established by God, leads to our acceptance by, by God. Our behavior does not. And so it's important for us to hear this morning, church, we are not working to level up or get a promotion as Christians. 
We're not looking for a promotion. Our behavior doesn't uh, give us more access to God. He's given us all of himself already by recreating us from the very inside out. And so the truth is we are either a Christian or we are not. We are either slaves to obedience or slaves to sin, not somewhere in between. We're either alive in our hearts or completely dead in our sinful hearts. We've either been gifted grace or we are facing the, the gulp moment to get what we deserve. And so church, those who are Christ followers, you, you, you must hear this this morning. Our sin is not inevitable because God has recreated us at the core of our being. He's recreated us at the core of our being. Because we're recreated at the core of our being, we're free to experience, free to experience this new identity by what? Pursuing obedience. Pursuing obedience. So it's not about earning our way to God. It's not about chugging along, hoping it's good enough. God has made you good enough by the work of Jesus Christ. And he says, experience who I've made you. And so Paul's command here is slave to righteousness, organize your life towards Christ. Organize your life toward righteousness. There's no higher calling. Do you know why? Because it's who we are. It's our new identity in Jesus Christ. There's no better investment in this life than an obedience to God. Why? Because he, we're investing in our eternal identity who God has made us. There's no greater use of energy than living for God now. Why? Because that's what we've been created, recreated to do. We are a new person because we've been given a, a heart of obedience already. We're free to exercise true freedom, freedom from sin. In all this, one thing Paul wants us to understand is that God is generous. That's why he starts verse 17 with thanks be to God. God is generous. Not only does God give us living hearts, hearts from which obedience sprouts, he gives us the scriptures. Think about this. In, in the communicants class today, one of the kids said, we know God loves us because he gave us the Bible. <laughs> he gave us the Bible so we know who he is. He gives us prayer. Do you know why we have prayer? To call out to him, to tell him how much we need him. He gives us one another, believe it or not. The church, we walk together we walk toward holiness together. We stumble together. We learn to, to be forgiven and forgive one another. It's all practice toward our new identity. He gives us baptism, a sign of the promise of, that he makes that if you have, just have faith in me, the non-work of faith, you will be saved. I do that, says God. And he gives us here the Lord's Supper so we can be strengthened in this long walk of life discovering our new identity. And so this morning, who should come? Who should eat? Who's invited? 
if you believe first and foremost that God created you for a purpose, that purpose to be in relationship with him, that's our ultimate fulfillment. If you believe that and you believe that by your own acts, your own life, but also the, the human heart, that we are separated from that reality and there's no way back on our own. You believe that Jesus Christ came not just to show us how to live, that's thinking of only God's commands, but to fulfill real promises, real promises. That's why Jesus came to make our salvation sure and not dependent upon us. If you believe those things, you've declared it publicly, you've been baptized, you've confessed your sins, received forgiveness, the scriptures make it clear, you're welcome, no hindrance. Come and be nourished by the spiritual presence of the body of Christ. For those of you here that maybe you're investigating Christianity, maybe you, you grew up as a Christian, maybe um, there, there's all kinds of scenarios, but either you do not believe that you need a savior like that, you do not believe that Jesus could be that savior or is not that savior, or you have a sin in your life and you say, I just, honestly, I love it too much. You're much like the rich young ruler. Maybe you live a decent life, but there's something in your life that if God asked you to give it up, you just say, I wouldn't do that. The scriptures make it clear. This is not a time to come and eat, to participate. Uh, in fact, it warns against that. And so we here as a church following scripture do the same. Let's take a moment and just in quiet, uh, one last time, evaluate our hearts. Let's thank God for what he has done. Let's thank God for his new identity and put our place, ourselves in a place where we can receive the Lord's Supper as a generous gift from our Lord. Father in heaven, your ways are beyond us and I am so grateful for the moments where your ways, uh, even in small ways, become clear. It is clear this morning from Romans 6 that obedience has an origin. It comes from the heart that you give us freely, graciously, mercifully. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that you would free us from the bonds of thinking we must behave in order to earn your favor. We must behave in order to earn our way to God. That's an impossible path of either pride or discouragement. I pray that you would remind us, show us, convict us of the fact that by Jesus Christ, his broken body, his shed blood, his resurrection, his ascension, through that work, you've recreated us simply by faith. Graciously, you save us. We don't deserve it. It's not fair. You do it anyway. Praise your name for eternity for the gospel. I pray this morning as we come and we eat that all of us in our different scenarios 